The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. 53106 at a cost of 30 cent if you want to get in touch with the show. It is Anton in for Kieran on The Hard Shoulder. Joined once again by Gavin Dowd for In Our Defence, where we look at what might seem like a peculiar legal case in history and we find out what impact it had on public life. Gavin, you're very welcome. What have we got today? We've got a key decision from the civil rights movement from 1950s America. And it might seem, you might be wondering, why am I bringing up this this case now? Well, it's in light of Roe v. Wade, probably the most important uh, Supreme Court decision from the US in 50 years. We saw this draft opinion, which suggests that the Supreme Court could be overturning that precedent. And this case we're going to discuss today is a great example of the US Supreme Court overturning one of its own decisions from the past. So it's been done before it can be done again. And um, let me take you back to the 1880s, because that's where our story begins today and the story of Homer Plessy. Homer Plessy sits down on uh, a rail carriage uh, from New Orleans to Covington. Now, this is a rail carriage which is uh, for white people uh, exclusively. And he's arrested for doing so. He undertakes his act of defiance, like Rosa Parks did, and he goes to court to try and challenge this. And he says, the 14th Amendment of the US Constitution, which was inserted after the Civil War, uh, gives me equal protection of the laws. Everyone is entitled to equal protection of the laws. This is discriminatory. Therefore, segregation should be unconstitutional. Well, the court in the 1800s, no surprises, disagrees and says that this equal protection clause only applies to civil and political rights. So, for example, the right to vote and doesn't apply to what they call social rights, which would include the right to sit wherever you want in a rail carriage, which I don't know if social rights are necessary their own category of rights uh, when it comes to something as, as simple as sitting somewhere in, in public transport. But that presumably then does lead to segregation, it leads to the Jim Crow, Jim Crow laws. laws, it leads to all of that because you can define, as you say, you can find almost anything. Once you're allowed to vote, you can define it almost anything as a social right. Basically, it's a way to undermine, uh, to justify segregation. And they said there's a fallacy in Homer Plessy's argument here because Uh, It it is not necessarily the case that just because we have segregation that black people are not being treated equally. So this is the the whole separate but equal argument which is is justified by the court. Now, an important legal concept which we must explain is the idea of precedent. That in order to ensure predictability and consistency in law that courts will follow decisions that courts in the past have made. If a similar case comes up today that reflects facts or laws that have uh, have uh, been heard in court in the past, the court will follow and, and do the same thing. And this is particularly the case for the Supreme Court, the highest court in the US, we have a Supreme Court in Ireland as well, that it's bound by its own past decisions. So here comes another case in the 1950s. Now the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, had been had been fighting uh, f- to, to have America desegregated all throughout the 20th century, and in particular, they wanted desegregation in elementary schools, which is where I mean it affected kids at such a young age. It was so symbolic of the structural uh, segregation in America at the time. And Thurgood Marshall... And I'm right in saying that it, it, it underpinned much of the socioeconomic impact of segregation because you got such a different flow of resources from the white schools to the black schools that you guaranteed impoverished generations of black kids coming out of their elementary school. And in many senses, Anton, that still lasts to this day. I mean, the, the structures were not fully deconstructed and and that still leads to uh to uh, I, I guess pockets of of poverty and and racial injustice in in the United States today Thurgood Marshall was the 
uh, attorney that led their um, that led their case. He later became a U.S. Supreme Court judge. He was the, the first African American Supreme Court judge. Uh, so they they got five cases together, and this is typical when you're doing kind of social justice advocacy. You try and find plaintiffs that will have the strongest arguments, they couple the five cases together and you go to court. So Linda Brown had tried to get access to her local elementary school in Topeka in Kansas and it was refused because the principal says it's a white primary school. Unfortunately, uh, the rule is we, we can't have black people. And Oliver Brown, her, her father, took the case. Now, Anton, there were a few fortunate factors which made this case into legal history and prevented it from becoming just a mere footnote, which otherwise it would have become uh, in, the, in the civil rights movement. First of all, this case was first heard in the early 1950s. This was in advance of the 1952 presidential election and the justices on the Supreme Court were acutely concerned about the the fact that their decision might become a bit of a political football and might become the subject of, of campaigning the presidential election. So on a legal technicality, they threw it down to a lower court, thus delaying them having to make the final verdict. Now, at that time anyway, uh, Chief Justice Vinson... Uh, was in charge of the Supreme Court and he was in favour of segregation or he didn't feel that segregation was unconstitutional. So it looked like Linda Brown was not going to succeed. So we had that. But then uh, Eisenhower was elected in 1952. Chief Justice Vinson passed away. He was replaced by a more liberal judge. And of course, Supreme Court appointments in the US are they're lifelong. Lifelong and completely politicised, as we know. Um, but Chief Justice Earl Warren was his replacement and he was completely against segregation and he did everything he could over a number of months to convince the other judges to deliver a, a, a verdict that would revolutionise the civil rights movement in America. And a big thing for him when he delivered this judgment, and we'll hear a little clip from it in a moment, is that he wanted to completely remove himself from the politics of it. He didn't want to be accused of... He didn't want the court being dragged into... Um, into disrepute or being accused that uh, the justices were partisan. So he wrote it in really simple, non-accusatory, apolitical language. Here's one of the most important quotes from the case. We conclude that in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. Therefore, we unanimously hold that the plaintiffs are deprived of the equal protection of the laws guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. And with that, the doors of every elementary school in the South were thrown open and all was well with the world. <laughs> a happy ending. No, I wish. I wish. Now, what you'll hear from that clip there is that they say it's inherently unequal, the doctrine of separate but equal. And you mentioned earlier uh, this policy where they, you know, there was underfunding going towards African-American schools versus white schools. And this is what the NAACP had argued. But the court went a step beyond this and said, you know, forget about... African-American schools getting less funding. It's not a question of funding here. It's a question of humanity, essentially. When you're separating children at such a young age, you are making African-American kids feel inferior. And this is something that kind of lasts in their psyche forevermore. And it, uh, particularly at, at such a young age and in the context of education, which is all about opening doors for people in the rest of their life and... So how significant then was this one specific decision in the context of the overall civil rights movement? Very significant. Uh, a year later, they, they ordered for de- desegregation with all deliberate speed. It, it, it led to Thurgood Marshall, as I said, the, the advocate in the case, ended up being appointed to the Supreme Court, the first black nominee uh, to the Supreme Court. This was a really important uh, decision in the context of the, the civil rights movement. But interestingly, if we, if we could compare it to Roe v. Wade, which was a decision that came about 
20 years later. And there's a few similarities here. Firstly, they're both cases fighting for the underdog where the court found in favour of social justice. Second of all, we're seeing in this case, in Linda Brown's case, they overturned a past decision that they had made. And it looks like the Supreme Court's going to overturn its own decision in Roe v. Wade in the coming months. And interestingly, and this is just another quirky uh, similarity, that while both plaintiffs, uh, Norma McCorvey in, in Roe v. Wade and Linda Brown in Brown and Board of Education, they, they won their strategic victories. They did not directly benefit from the outcome of their case. Linda Brown never got to go to a desegregated uh, elementary school because she had passed into uh, high school by the time the case was decided. Interestingly, not a lot of people know this as well. Norma McCorvey, who was Roe in Roe v. Wade, never got to have an abortion because she had actually given birth by the time the case was decided. So maybe it says something about the, the pace of the, the judicial system. But it's just, it's it's kind of, it's funny that these people who were the face of such big uh, monumental court decisions in the US never really directly benefited from the, uh, the the legacy that they left behind. One final thing before you go, the legal question of the week. How is a jury selected for a case? Have you ever been called for jury duty? I have. Yes. I, I think many people let out a ghastly sigh <laughs> when they see <laughs> that letter come in and think, oh God, here we go. Yes, so people are called for jury duty. You get the letter in the post and a large number of people turn up at court and they select a jury of 12 people. So the chances are, even if you are selected for jury duty or called for it, you turn up at court, there's a good chance that you won't actually end up being impaneled uh, on a particular jury for a case. Now, if you know anyone involved in the case, you can obviously excuse yourself. And like in America, like we might have seen in the the O.J. Simpson trial, it's, it's dramatised greatly in that uh, Netflix show. Uh, each side can challenge seven potential jurors. So the prosecution and defence can reject to certain jurors without having to give a reason for it. Without having to give a reason. You don't have to say, here's why I th- just don't like that one. They've got get seven chances without a reason. And then further, uh, after the seven uh, rejects, they can uh, they they're, they're ne- they need to give a reason. And is Judge, I have a lot on that week. I'm very busy. Just <laughs> that. A friend of mine went down to the courts a couple of years ago and uh, someone had got it up and said, oh, Judge, I've booked a holiday to Taramalinos this weekend. Won't be able to make it. So uh, that go down? you can imagine how much sympathy you got for that. Uh-huh. Gavin Dowd, thank you very much. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.